Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Good morning and welcome to the new year, 2020. I will refrain from the already overused um, and terrible optometry jokes, um, but that doesn't mean I have to dislike them. All right. Um, last week, Jordan spent some time asking the question and answering it, what does it mean to be perfect in Christ? We talk about this, but what does it actually mean to, to do that? And he took us through from the dawn of creation all the way to the new heavens and the new earth, describing how this new humanity is supposed to actually act and work. And most importantly, we see this in Jesus. In a sense, the perfect human, the best Adam. And we see that now as we are to not only just be like him, but rather we are to be in him. And, the, and, and, and he in us and completely be enveloped as we are to be a new humanity in Christ. Um, this is discipleship. This is following Jesus Christ to the extent that we become like Christ in every single way. Now, this call that Jordan made to us is, is relevant also for our text today. Our identity, our calling, our discipleship is both a gift to us, something that's given to us, something that we cannot merit ourselves so it is a gift to us, but it is also a task for us, one that he says to work out with fear and trembling. And so we recognize this, almost this dual nature of that God is the one who's responsible for all this, and yet he calls us to that task of discipleship and being mature. Um, today what we're going to do is take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So go ahead and turn there, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 3 through 5. We are continuing on in our series uh, on the subject of the gospel and its ramifications for our church life. Um, this week and next week, we'll be tackling the subject of Christian community. What does the Bible say about community? We throw this term around, especially the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. It's been really hot to talk about this in general. But we want to ask the, te the, the text what it purports to actually be Christian community. We know that in the gospel, Jesus saves us from the wrath and the punishment of God that we so rightly deserve. He makes us a part of his body. But then, what we'll talk about today is that he calls us to live a certain way with the rest of the brothers and sisters that make up the body of Christ. We're going to start by reading 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, and then we'll pray and we'll begin. But we're kind of dropping right into a letter here that also has a pre-letter to that and potentially other letters as well. So I think it's helpful to give a, a little bit of context before we read. Um, Paul is taking up space here to defend his apostolic ministry, the fact that he has the authority of Christ to speak in matters of Christian life and what actual reality is. The false teachers, um, they aren't really impressed with who Paul is. Um, they aren't impressed. He seems boring, very simple, uh, to the point that they call him weak, um, where they, on the opposite hand, are very clever they're very strong. They're very persuasive. And as Paul responds to some of these things, he gets to the root of the problem as he's defending the authority that he has, specifically in the gospel. We get this wonderful little section here that we may not talk about a lot, or maybe I think we end up misusing it once in a while, but we should. How Paul and we should engage in worldly philosophy. This was actually what the problem was with these false teachers. Certainly they were being jerks to Paul and the way they were treating him, but the problem was they did not believe the gospel handed down by Jesus Christ to his apostles. And so what they're doing is twisting that truth just enough for their own purposes. So let's read verses 3 through 5, and then we'll pray. Verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive 
to obey Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the ministry of your word. We draw our knowledge of you from it. We understand, we understand our, our depravity from it. We find in your word the words of life. Thank you for giving us your revealed word, the Bible, and thank you so much, Lord, for the coming work and ministry of the Holy Spirit who is actively giving life and growing your people. Lord, we'd ask that you would build your church today by the work of the Holy Spirit that you'd make us mature and perfect in Christ. Would you actively work in our hearts, the hearts of your people, to have each of us bow our wills to you, the Almighty King? Lord, you show us the worldly philosophies and evil desires that just so easily sneak into our heart and become part of our thought processes. Lord, help us to tear them down by the power of your Spirit. We might capture them and turn these desires over to the obedience of our true King, King Jesus. We love you, and we expectantly look for you to build your church. God, I ask that you would guide us, keep us from sin and pride and walling off parts of our heart but rather may we open ourselves to your word's work in us. Guide and build us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our Sunday morning gatherings together are a great source of blessing and a means of grace for you and me. When we really consider what's going on, we realize that we live in a world that disregards or probably more so hates God. And as we join together, we recognize that the truth is not verified because other people verify it, but they point us back to the most important person, Jesus Christ, who shows us the reality of this world. And it's a, a truly an opportunity and an oasis for us to continue to be recalibrated to the truth, not to whatever philosophy is going on around us. I realize that we've all come in from a dark, cold world that really does not intend on sympathizing with those that want to take up their cross and follow Jesus. I know that we're in the midst of an entire world that both overtly, but also covertly proclaims a different, more comfortable, more reasonable gospel of what the good life ought to look like. That's the world that we live in. It's trying to, as best we can, live the best life that we can around us, making whether it's good money or providing some sort of happiness and joy and meaning for our lives. And there are varying degrees, don't get me wrong, of intensity and discipline on how people pursue these things. Some have strong philosophies of living, and this is the way that you ought to do it. But make no, make no mistake, whether they're really severe about it or whether just nonchalant, life is good type attitude, they're all vying for our attention and for our loyalty. They're trying to, if I can say this, authenticate their own message by having others believe that it's okay for you to live according to the way that you want to live, or that seems to work best for you, or, as Judges says it, doing what is right in your own eyes. So they, again, there's several different philosophies of life, but we come in from that world that says, get your own and make sure you do it well and enjoy your life as best as you can. But in the midst of that, it seeks to teach us that truth. Whether we know it or not, it is indoctrinating us. That's called teaching. It's constantly telling us what we ought to believe and what we ought to do and how we ought to think about the world around us. And so as it does this, it wants us to believe that we ought to live to those standards. Certainly not the standards of the Bible. Certainly not those antiquated standards of old-time Christianity. But rather, live according to the ones that make sense, the ones that are reasonable, the ones that we can verify seem to actually work long-term. And I realize, like you and me, our loyalty to Jesus Christ and our submission to his way and our love for him is attacked and mocked and strained by every person that we come in contact that does not love Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to grow cold. It's easy for us to submit to these other philosophies and thoughts and other loves. I can easily be stained by sin and discouragement, my own pride. I can slowly question God's commands his intentions, his promises, when I don't see them coming true around me in the ways that I think I ought to be able to, we begin to doubt that this God actually is who he says he is and that what he promises will come true. 
doubt creeps in, and so many other things seem to look far more attractive in this life than God does. And then I come back together here with you today and gather, and we sing these songs, and we read the Word. I love how Jordan had, I don't know if you saw that, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Underneath he had dash Jesus. As if someone else could say that. Like, that's where it's from. Jesus is saying this. We sing these songs. We pray together. We hear the preaching of the word. We, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Why? All of these things recalibrate us to the truth. They continue to remind us of who God actually is. This is not to get your religious checklist checked off. This is doing something. It is training your heart to sing his praise. It's for the purpose that you would believe the true story of the world, that you would know that the gospel is not some get-out-of-jail-free card, but rather making you into a corporate people, his people, and that therefore the way that we live our lives matters a great deal for eternity, not just for today, not just for the next 40 years, but rather in Christ it matters for the whole world and it matters for eternity. And so as we join together today, we recognize that that happens through our own Bible reading as we sit down to read the Word, as we pray, as we hear an encouragement from our brother or sister. Perhaps we read something, a, a, a section of Scripture that would give minister grace to us. As we take the supper, as we enjoy fellowship. But all these things, the Spirit ministering to us the grace that we need to believe the truth, faith in Christ, that we would not believe the story of the world around us. We recognize that we need to be gathering together, hearing the word, ministering grace to one another in love because we are constantly inundated by this world's philosophy, the philosophies. And when we are consistently inundated with the world's philosophy, our hearts begin to love other things. It's so sneaky. We don't really know it sometimes. We wouldn't say it. I don't love this or that thing. But so easily we begin to love all the stuff that the world loves, the things that aren't God, the things that somehow promise these joys and, and, and value and all the stuff, and yet it cannot come through ultimately on its promises. So this morning, what we're doing is joining together to have our hearts, again, like the, like the, like the songwriter says, tuned to sing his praise to love the most spectacular being in the universe, to hear the true story of the world, whether they believe it or not. It is the truth. We gather to hear this story, to love this God, to live according to his way. That's called wisdom. And that we would respond in faith and trust and obedience to him. And today, we want to do that talking about Christian community. So we come to this, this context and this idea and this topic and even as we look at this, it teaches us about the true story of who God is and how we ought to live. If you were to uh, peek into our elder meetings, uh, kind of look at our notes, kind of sit there a few times, you'd recognize, just like everybody else, there are too many things to do and not enough time to do them. Uh, so many different things that are on our elders' to-do list. Um, and as we came to this topic that I'm talking about today, this topic of Christian community and, and community groups continued to rise to the surface over and over and over again. And we realized, especially as pastors, that we needed to take some specific time to spend thinking through and leading our congregation through what it meant to actually practice Christian community. Um, there were random comments, concerns along the way over the years, concerns, good questions, and even complaints that caused us to step back and take a look at what we were doing and ask in this community structure that we're using, are we doing all the right things that we ought to be doing according to Scripture? And, and make no mistake about it, when we talk about community groups, we're talking about a structure. We're talking about an organized plan for us to actually meet together and practice Christian biblical community. And we knew that this structure was important enough that we needed to spend some time really looking at it, asking the questions, and making sure that we could lead properly uh, in this part of a very important part of our church life. We began compiling this list of questions and comments and complaints and concerns. And the issues we really started to see was that we didn't just need to 
like tweak a few things about our logistics. It was actually a little bit of a bigger issue that was going on. And after doing some simple root cause analysis and asking many questions and looking it over, it became clear that there were some issues that we really needed to address before we ever changed the way that we do community group structure. We realized that we, I'm included here, many of us within Cornerstone were holding on to unbiblical ideas about what community was supposed to look like. We were using some of the definitions and expectations that the world had driven into us in ways that we thought that it ought to be and look and feel. So we realized that this was going to result and it already had begun resulting in broken expectations, frustration, um, even restlessness. And, and this is continuing to show us that <laughs> we were expecting things that the gospel never promised at all. There were a whole host of desires and expectations and ideals among us that didn't match up with how the Bible talked about Christian community. So what we decided to do was two things. Number one, first, we need to tear down these unbiblical expectations. We need to expose them as worldly philosophies and handle them according to the word. Now, that's not to say at all that we completely just throw the baby out of the bathwater. God continues to use his structure to build his people and to work. But we recognize, as we looked at this, that we need to tear some of those ideas down because they are worldly. The second thing we need to do, though, is recalibrate our understanding of community to the Bible's definition of what it tells us has happened to us in the gospel, who it's made us, and therefore how we should work in this world according to his wisdom. We realized that we needed to believe and preach the simple truth that Christian community is the task of doing one another spiritual good. You're going to hear that phrase a lot. Doing one another spiritual good. So we need to do both of those things. So today what we're going to do is the first part. We're going to handle this task looking at the Bible to consider how we ought to engage with worldly philosophy and how we should treat the wisdom of the world as Paul calls it. And as we do this, we're going to realize that this is not just um, an approach for figuring out community. It's far broader than that. It's actually an exercise in Christian discernment and spiritual warfare. And therefore, it is relevant in every element of life here in a fallen world. So today, yes, we're headed towards Christian community. But today's sermon you're going to recognize is not going to be overabundantly talking about community. By the end, we're going to come back and apply specific to that topic. But what we're seeing in the scriptures is something that we must engage in spiritual warfare against these things that so easily creep in and take our hearts away from loving and trusting our God. So despite our new identity in Christ, who we know in the gospel has made us his own, we find ourselves believing the story of the world around us. And instead of the true story of history found in the pages of the Bible, we believe the one that we can see with our natural eyes. Now, this is not the first time that we've talked about this, even in this uh, series. We've showed that God gives us his word to reveal what is going on in ultimate reality. He is, by giving us the scriptures, allowing us to see both all of history past and where he is going in the future. And these things are sure. All of these things tell us what is actually happening. And the Bible continues to show us and to reveal to us the truth. He shows us, most importantly, a true revelation of himself. The Word, Jesus Christ himself. And shows us that when we interact with him here in 2020 in Virginia Beach, the way that we interact in the scriptures and know Jesus Christ has an enormous bearing on how we practice and think and do and feel. It is the thing that constantly grounds us. We live by faith under the word of God. The word is the one true story that differs from what the world tells us is true. Uh, It's the one story that contradicts, like we said before, what we can see with our natural eyes, what we hear to be true from the people around us, all the research that denies God but gives us all the evidence for something that's different from what the Bible says. The Bible and all that it reveals to us about the truth and reality is the only thing, the only thing that rightly keeps us grounded and keeps us from being tossed by worldly philosophy of truth and reality. 
So you see here, this, this, this worldly philosophy, uh, you know, when we talk about it, it's not a benign, harmless uh, way of thinking about life around us. It, it's not. In fact, worldly philosophy at its base is an attack on the gospel. It is an attack on God himself. Satan and the whole world system, for that matter, seeks to overthrow God, seeks to overthrow his truth, and obviously to seek to overthrow his authority, to toss it off in rebellion. Think about Peter when he warns the Christians. He says this in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Wow. They say, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Or consider Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. You think we're in any sort of spiritual warfare? Listen, he says, not outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, that he is mounting attacks, designing plans to hurt the saints. In other words, we know that he is actively working to trick, to outwit, to use both suffering and success to damage believers' joy and satisfaction in Christ. And consider how Paul describes the God of this world when he says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now we recognize that he's doing this to unbelievers. He's blinding unbelievers. But this is not to say that Christians are impervious to the harmfulness of these things that he calls truths. The facts and truths that the world uses to keep unbelievers blinded from the gospel can have an effect on yours and my satisfaction in Christ, can change the way that we think about life, and can so easily pull us from true satisfaction and trust in God alone. Satan seeks to use every method that he can to wage war against us. Now, we know that Satan is not omnipotent. He's not sovereign. He's not omnipresent. He is not all-knowing. But don't get him wrong. He is an incredibly powerful, deceptive creature. And he hates God. He uses every bit of the things that God gave to him to war against God because he hates him. The fight that Satan in this world wages is not amazingly, though, a physical one. We know this. He certainly uses sickness and sufferings and other wicked creatures to fight against God and his saints, but more often than not, he's much more concerned about the mind. He's far more concerned about tearing away pieces and undergirdings of the gospel and trying to get to the fact that we eventually don't see that we need Jesus Christ. He's very wily, he goes on here in Ephesians 6, if you know this, remember this part, Paul highlights the spiritual dark forces that we encounter and must war against. He says this, and you know this passage, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He goes on to show us that we have everything we need in Christ. We call this the armor of God every piece of armor to fight against this terrible enemy. But in this passage, and that's why we're not there today, he, he doesn't specifically tell us the way in which the devil is going to go after us or the way in which the world system works. He more in Ephesians is going to tell us that we need to put on this whole armor of God and trust Christ so that we are prepared to go on the offensive and defensive in this battle. But that's not exactly to say that Paul hasn't left us or other biblical writers for that matter without the ways the devil attacks. We know that Satan fights against evangelism. Think about 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. He's fighting against evangelism. We know that he causes physical sickness. In Acts 10.38, Luke records how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing, who? People were sick. All who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We also know that he tempts people to sin. Think about 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. 
He's powerful and working and continually deceiving God's people. We know also that he's a murderer and a liar. And from John 4, 8, 44, we know he is the father of lies. He says, you, he's talking about the, uh, the Jewish leaders who are ready to murder him. He says this about them. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in that truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So it's evident to us, and we know this, and we could probably rattle off even more things here, that he attacks both believers and unbelievers for the sake of his own little kingdom. But we also know that Satan takes advantage of more acceptable and prestigious methods, ones that seem reasonable and intelligent, If you consider this, he appeals to our intellect and to our reason, our common experience and the evidence that we can see as human beings. If we are spiritually perceptive, though, and wise and trust God's word, we begin to see the subtle propaganda that he uses to proclaim his own kingdom, which we said from the beginning, there are so many different philosophies of this world, so many other religions as well. All of them have one thing in common. They don't trust Christ in all accounts. They don't love and trust him completely. He says, love the Lord your God, their heart, soul, and mind. They may have different tendrils and do all kinds of different things, but at the, at the core, they don't love and trust God completely. Now, in Colossians 2.8, Paul says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There is another form of spiritual warfare that doesn't seem too bad to us. And, and the truth is, it's extremely deceptive. As a matter of fact, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like warfare at all. All of us can see it when we're face-to-face with an overt spiritual attack on us, like the type that's like big and ugly and easily definable sins. We recognize that, and we're We're trying our best to fight. And sometimes we succumb to those temptations and sometimes we fight by God's grace and mortify them over and over again using the things that God has given to us by his grace to fight against sin. But my point here is that these type of attacks that we we can know and see and are easily definable, there's a whole separate other bunch of attacks. And now we're starting to get into what our passage is about. They're far more deceptive and insidious. They seem harmless, They seem like they're not that big of a deal, but they slowly erode the foundation of the gospel and complete trust in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul's warning us about in Colossians 2.8. He's wanting us to sit up and pay attention to these worldly philosophies, these human wisdoms and understandings and traditions. They seem so reasonable. They seem to make sense. They seem to be, you know, backed up by proof and evidence. But actually, they will take your soul captive and pull you away from obedience to Christ at all. So this is exactly what we're talking about when we come to 2 Corinthians 10. When we get here, Paul knows that the enemy is wily and smart and out for our destruction. So Paul doesn't want us to be taken captive by this deceptive, insidious attack. Instead, he wants us to go get this, not defensive, offensive He wants us to go on the offensive when dealing with these worldly philosophies. Look at that language, destroying them, tearing them down, capturing all of them, and turning our hearts to submit to our true king and his ways instead of following the wisdom of this world. So let's do this. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. I'm going to read it, and we're going to see his words here uh, amidst this spiritual warfare. Verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, to give you a brief background, we kind of started a little bit. The Corinthian Christians are being heavily influenced by these false teachers or false apostles and by those practicing and teaching these pseudo-truths. These false teachers have been taking shots at Paul and his ministry, claiming that he is not really an apostle, and therefore the Corinthian believers really shouldn't even listen to him. 
but rather they should listen to them. They should listen to those guys, the false teachers, because their arguments are persuasive, are reasonable, are with power, they're intelligent. And surely, they say, (laughs) they are far wiser than this inconsistent, lowly, weak Paul who doesn't even present his case in a way of power, wisdom, or strength. One of the main problems for Paul, according to the false teachers, is this, in verse 10 he says, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. So we gotta see that Paul doesn't care what people think about his speaking abilities. He doesn't care that he has to use all of the rhetoric and all the different tactics of the day to persuade people. He's not concerned about basing his ministry on persuasiveness or on plausibility of his words. In 1 Corinthians 2.4, he says, that's not what I based my ministry on, but rather in demonstration of the power of the Spirit. That's where he wants to be. You see, he didn't care if people thought he's a good speaker or not. He cared that the Word of God was carefully delivered and the Holy Spirit would do the lasting supernatural work that Paul could never do. He understood that. Paul wasn't able to reach inside their souls and change them. All he could do was obey Christ and deliver the truth and have the Spirit do that work in power. He didn't really care if he was the wittiest debater. He didn't care if he was able to string a cleverly uh, compiled argument and then bring it home with a heart-wrenching story to really make sure everyone left and was like, wow, I mean, he must be right. I mean, he convinced me. That was unbelievable. That's got to be the right thing. Paul understood that darkened hearts, and when I say darkened, I mean dead hearts. He understands that darkened hearts need Christ's spirit to make them alive. There's no way that he could endear them enough to get them saved. There's no way that he could yell at them enough to make sure that they repented and that that actually changed them. There was no way that he could somehow be convincing and persuasive enough to take someone who's spiritually dead and make them spiritually alive. And so the way that he did his ministry was not according to the way that the world would try to persuade people towards their arguments, toward their philosophy. You can't bring a spiritually dead person to spiritual life. And the same was true for those who had gotten into spiritual life, who were Christians. His ministry now didn't switch from working in the spiritual realm to working according to the flesh. You guys remember this from Galatians 3.3. He says, are you so foolish that you began by the Spirit, like you were converted, you were made alive by the Spirit, and now you're going to be perfected or matured or discipled by the flesh? That doesn't make any sense. Paul understood that persuasion, emotional appeals, could never do these things. Do you really think that the Holy Spirit who brought you from deadness to life, you've bred this to life, that now that you can grow spiritually by all other means besides the Holy Spirit? Perhaps your human traditions, your philosophies, your disciplines, the way of life that everyone else tells you you ought to do it and this is going to create the best life that you can have? No. Paul is making it crystal clear that he is far more concerned with the truth being told and the power of the Holy Spirit initiating and sustaining true growth in believers. He's more concerned about that than how people think about his abilities and that he's a really incredible speaker. This is the background to these verses then, as we're getting into this. In verse 3, Paul acknowledges that our lives are lived out here on this plane in, in physical, intellectual, and emotional realities. He calls that by the flesh. But that war, the war that we are fighting, is not one that's merely a physical one. It's not merely one that's intellectual or emotional. Rather, it goes further and deeper than any sinful human being can go. In verse 4, Paul tells us that our weapons in this warfare are not physical. They're not intellectual. They're not emotional ones. He says they are not of the flesh. But rather, look, he says these weapons have divine power. We are fighting against spiritual powers of darkness. And by ourselves, we have nothing that can combat these powers. We don't. If we fight by ourselves, we will lose. You know this from Luther's hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, right? Second verse, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We couldn't do it. It's impossible. But we do not fight by ourselves. 
through faith in Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we fight with divine power against the powers of darkness. He says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power, for what reason? To destroy strongholds. Now, strongholds, what, what does that mean? What, what is he trying to say here? Obviously, there, I mean, are we supposed to go to every structure that we know is wicked and tear that building down? Or is he talking about something far worse, actually? Our enemy advances and attacks and creates systems, not only physical ones, although that's true, but deep thought processes and philosophies, human traditions, all of these different things that take a hold, a foothold, not only in general society, but in our hearts. These places of resistance against God. These lies and philosophies in the world become bulwarks or fortresses or strongholds of resistance against God and his rule in the world. But these aren't only strongholds, again, like I said, in a general way, but rather they're actually even strongholds in our heart, places that we're not willing to give over to God. Sometimes we don't even know it, and we keep operating, and what's happening inside here is actually that we have followed a worldly philosophy that we thought was benign, but it's actually subverting the gospel. These things are outposts of resistance to the rule and reign of God in every area of life. And the assumption here is not that they're supposed to stay there and that we're supposed to stay back and hope nothing comes between us. The assumption here is that we are to destroy them, to tear them down, to remove them from their entrenched positions. Look at verse 5. He says, We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. To allow such resistance to stay entrenched and just play defense to make sure it doesn't get to us is absolutely foolish. And worse than that, it's disobedience. He calls us to destroy these entrenched positions of resistance and rebellion against God. Paul tells us that we ought to actively pursue the destruction of such arguments, lofty opinions, and every thought that would not be obedient to Christ. So, what is he talking about when he says arguments, lofty opinions, and thoughts? What, what kind of stuff is he referring to? Paul is talking, here we go, about the best secular philosophies of the day, and for that matter of any day. Of course, there are uh, philosophers, and more than that, he's talking about human intellect and conclusions that they come to about how to live the best version of this life that we can. He's talking about the use of history and science. He's talking about the use of anthropology and psychology, all the while denying the God of creation and using those things to create a philosophy of how we ought to live. He's talking about, he says this in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians he's talking about the wisdom of this world. Uh, he's talking about the best of the best coming together with their heads and their brains and coming to tell us how we ought to live as human beings. Think about this, the best scientists, the best scholars, the best doctors, the best humanitarians, the best entrepreneurs, the best social workers, the best self-help gurus, all of them providing us with worldly arguments, thoughts, and opinions that disregard or actively hate God. We're talking about a world that is not willing to bow their knee to Almighty God. And guess what? These philosophies have enormous amounts of truth in them. Enormous amounts of truth in them. It's a common grace that these things, people, humanitarians, scientists, scholars, doctors, can actually look at the world and understand it well. Their core problem is that they hate God. And so they can take all those things and they're directed wrongly. And so all of them, although they may seem true, when not connected to the God of creation, do nothing but rebel against them, against him. And they will drive them to dissatisfaction, hopelessness, and harm. Paul uses a very interesting word here, if you look at verse 4 and 5 too. The word for destroy has the idea of like, to tear down a building. The idea if we'd go and destroy a building, we'd tear it down. Now, don't miss the direction there. 
Think about the things that are up against here in a resistance. The strongholds are lofty opinions, those that are raised against the knowledge of God. All these things that show themselves to be resistance against God and that they pretend to somehow be what is actually wise. And Paul calls us to tear down these things. Paul is telling us that we must do battle in our own hearts against the things that raise themselves up against the wisdom of God, true wisdom, the way it actually is. At the end of verse 5, he makes it clear that the goal is to bring every thought, every philosophy, every tradition and rule under King Jesus to obey him. In every way, thought and philosophy, we are to obey Christ. We are to have only one allegiance, one loyalty, Christ alone. That's it. In one way, it's incredibly comforting. If you know Christ, you do not have to be concerned. If you will continually bow your knee to him, you are safe. I'm just not a very smart person, and I can read and read and read and read and read and be totally confused as to where I ought to go with all the different worldly philosophies on any given topic. But if I submit myself to Jesus Christ, following him and asking him for wisdom, he will provide it. He will. And in his will, as we follow him, we will have right answers, and we will do as he has told us to do. So we understand then that this allegiance to Christ is the difference between a worldly philosophy and what it means to submit oneself to God. Now, there are probably a million different ways that we could take this and apply it. Um, In fact, I will probably reference this passage several times in the future because there are so many places in our hearts that we don't even know we have worldly philosophies that reign, that are not willing to submit themselves to God. What is your philosophy about money, possessions, and resources? I want you to think about this. What is the way that you think about that? How how did you come to those thoughts? Like maybe through your parents or maybe through Dave Ramsey or maybe through other places that would give you good financial advice? Have you considered what Christ says about your stuff and how it is part of the kingdom of God? It's not meaningless. What is your philosophy of parenting? What voices do you listen to when it comes time for you to try your best to turn out good kids? What voices are you listening to? And how does that shape the way that you think about how you interact with your kids and other people's kids and the whole goal of what parenting is all about? Have you considered what Christ says about your goals and how you ought to raise your children? What is your philosophy of personal success? What does it look like to have a successful life? Now, this goes both to you and the heart, but also how you think about your children, how you think about organizations, et cetera, et cetera. Do you measure success in a worldly way? And I don't even necessarily mean like the one that makes the most money. Maybe it's a different worldly philosophy of what your business or life or success ought to look like. But where do you take your cues from? What do you do in the understanding of have I actually succeeded or not? Do you measure success in a worldly way or... Do you take your cues from the one who made you, gave himself for you, and redeemed you, and made you a new person with his full inheritance being yours? Whose cues do you take? This world's? What have they ever done for you? When our Lord and Savior has given himself and called us to allegiance to him, which is full of joy and hope, satisfaction, and reality, It's the truth, guys. This is not just something I'm doing as a self-help for you guys. This is the truth of the word actually coming with power to change our lives and align us for eternity with our maker, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. What is your philosophy of sexuality? What's your philosophy of food? What's your philosophy of productivity and work? You see, the areas of life that must be brought into subjection to the king, are infinite. Every part of your life. It is run by the way that you somehow think about it. Or perhaps, like me, you don't think about it. And you just do. And what, you, what you've actually fallen into is worldly philosophies that you've never even taken the time to actually think about. 
This is what Paul is telling us. We need to consider every area of our lives are prime battlegrounds for us to engage in the act of tearing down strongholds of resistance against God. And today, I want to end, though, by applying this passage to Christian community. I want us now to say, okay, what are we thinking about our philosophy of Christian community? What does success look like when we're talking about Christian community? What should we expect to get from Christian community? Or how should we think about Christian community? When we began this morning, I mentioned that the comments and complaints and questions were coming in. Um, We realized something. All these unbiblical ideas began to surface. Things that were seemed like good desires, and they're kind of right, but they weren't biblical. And they certainly weren't the point of what God tells us community is supposed to be about. Uh, the problem was that, you know, wasn't that community had failed us. The problem was that we were looking for something a little bit more than Christian community. Or I'll just, I'll be bold enough to say it, I think we were actually sometimes looking for things that are other than Christian community. I recognize that this is, um, we have to be careful here. But the problem is it's so deceptive in our hearts that we may not understand that we're talking about a spiritual battleground here and that we need to be willing to submit this and our ideas about what it's supposed to be like to our king and not settle for lesser glories, the things that we think we want here, we want out of community. What we're doing here, to sum it up, as we were looking at all the different things that we were struggling with, we encountered people looking to get something out of community, looking to receive something as they joined this community, looking as this a way to do something for me. We're viewing this as a a place to have an experience, uh, a place to get friendship, um, a place to have fun, a place to be enriched, a place to feel good, a place to eat with others, um, a a place where we could be a part of a a particular tribe and feel finally like we're accepted. And we were looking to this structure to do great things for us. Almost, in a sense, incredible, fantastic, almost otherworldly things, like so that everyone would notice and be like, oh my goodness, look at that, what's happening there. And when these things didn't happen, though, we became frustrated. It's so true. When we we have an expectation and it doesn't get satisfied, we become frustrated, disappointed, hurt, and we even sometimes experience spiritual digression and go away from some of these things that are supposed to be so good for us. And this isn't a new struggle for the church. I want to read from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He realized this problem in his own day. Listen carefully. He says, One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood or community. He is looking for some extraordinary social experience which he has not found elsewhere. He is bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian community. And I both love this next statement and hate it because it's so true. He's talking about human philosophies and how they change the way that we think about what Christian community is supposed to be like. He says this, The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be like and try to realize it, try to pursue those things, what he thinks it's supposed to be. Get this, But God's grace speedily shatters his dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine fellowship with him, so surely must we be overwhelmed by the great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, disillusionment with ourselves. He's pointing out something that's so slight that we slowly begin to trust other believers. We slowly begin to trust a community group structure. We slowly begin to trust ourselves even. But by God's grace, we are asking him to make sure that we can take those scales off and see those things for what they are. That we ought to rather trust Christ and Christ alone 
and find our sufficiency and joy and fuel for doing what he's asked us to do in him, not in this great social experiment called Christian community. Um, he's reminding us that all other ground is sinking sand. We sang it this morning. True Christian community is centered on the person and work of no one other than Jesus Christ himself. All other philosophies of Christian community that make much of what we ought to get from one another are vain. They will disappoint. They will fail us. Next week, our goal is to look at Jesus' words and find out what he tells us to do when he says this is what community ought to look like. And you're going to hear me say this again and again and again. We're going to find that Christian community looks like doing one another spiritual good. We're going to find that as Jesus shows us this, it's far more about obeying and living than it is about receiving and getting what's mine. All the other things that come along with it are just benefits that Christ may give or may not. Some of the fields, the good times are wonderful, and sometimes we don't have those. And still, the solid rock, what we do get promised is Jesus Christ himself. And if we're ever satisfied with lesser things, it's idolatry. And we have to be very careful in our own hearts that we would not assume these things as better than Christ himself. Therefore, Christian community is not a place where we go to get something, but a series of obedient actions of love and giving to one another according to the love that we have received in Jesus Christ. This brings us to the very end of ourselves, our expectations, our empty philosophies, and it brings us to find everything good in God alone. Do you understand that's what it's about? It's about glory to Jesus Christ alone. And anything that would tug our hearts away from that is an idol. However much we think those things seem right, and we can easily drift back into those. Be careful, brothers and sisters. These things pull our hearts away from our one true rock, our one true rock, Jesus himself. If we do these things, we will be distracted. We want to tear down our worldly philosophies, identify them, and actually bring them to the obedience of Christ. Now, I'm not saying this is going to happen overnight. I'm not saying that it's going to be really easy, like, oh, it's just a, a weekend thing. Write down all of your worldly philosophies that you struggle with and then tear them down. This will be an ongoing thing the rest of our lives. Because guess what? There are going to be other philosophies going to come out and they're going to seem so right. They're going to seem right close to what it's supposed to be. And yet they're going to be tricking us and not putting our full confidence in Christ and Christ alone. It's here in him, the obedience of Christ, that we will find true joy and satisfaction. Let's pray together. God, I recognize that we cannot, by my persuasiveness or plausibility of words, in any way bring spiritual perfection or maturity. And so we put it over in the hands of the Holy Spirit, asking you to work in us and to make us mature in Christ. Give us grace, Father, that we might be like him. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.